This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. It's a Thursday at one o'clock. Welcome to it. My name is Mabale Muloy. What an interesting and busy day in the news uh, as from this morning, right throughout the day, you will no doubt have heard about Oscar Pistorius, uh, the fact that the Supreme Court of Appeals found that he is in fact guilty of murder. You will also have heard that Heineke Meyer, Springbok coach, has resigned from his position as the coach. An interesting day in news. We are going to keep it moving, though, with what we had originally planned for this afternoon. Um, you might also be aware of the story involving Our Perfect Wedding, which is possibly one of the biggest shows in South African television in terms of how it is consumed by audiences and how many of these audience members watch this show. It is a big show indeed. And over the last week, uh, the last episode that was aired was a very controversial episode in the sense that the uh, groom that was involved shared events of how he got to meet his bride. Um, he met her while he was 28 years old and she was 14 and he told a story of how he was pursuing teenage girls and sleeping with them and it caused a whole lot of outrage and a whole lot of uproar uh, to the point that now um, our, uh, the uh, the producers of the show of Our Perfect Wedding uh, which runs under the production company that is owned by Basetsana Kumalo have now issued an apology. Um, we do know that the show itself faces a uh, a hearing of sorts because a BCCSA complaint was filed. So later on in the show, we're going to be talking about transactional relationships. These are the kind of relationships that involve men and women uh, hooking up with people where I suppose they exchange um, some some kind of relation, uh, particularly sex in this case, uh, for financial rewards. It's a big topic. Uh, we, we see it often on Twitter with people joking about hashtag side chicks, hashtag side pieces and that kind of thing. And the question that I really want to get to is whether or not this is the norm of where relationships stand today. Is this what people are considering a relationship to be? Are they happy with that sense? Or is, is it a problem? Is it a moral issue that we need to sort of take a step back on and check ourselves and say, hey, wait a minute, why are these transactional relationships gaining more and more momentum? Uh, is it some kind of scourge? And all that kind of thing. So we're going to be talking to Tulani Machere of Anova Health Institute a little bit later in the show to discuss that topic and get into the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I do want to spend some time talking to two ladies um, with regards to an issue that I think a lot of us have in some way or another been touched by. I imagine that there are a lot of South Africans today who know of somebody, whether it be a family member or a friend, or have heard a story of somebody who has who has had to survive cancer. Um, it's, it's, it's a big health, health problem for, for all of us. It does not discriminate. This is the one thing that we keep hearing. We also keep hearing that cancer can be beaten, which is a great thing. We know that, uh, the people in the medical profession are working very hard to make sure that they find, um, some kind of cure for cancer, whereby in the later years, we could possibly be treating it and dealing with it as a kind of chronic condition like asthma or something like that, where the fact that you are diagnosed with cancer doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, you could possibly be facing death, but that it, it is something that can be managed in the form of a chronic condition. Um, and so this afternoon, I am joined in studio by Margaret Hewson, who is the pro- program director of Feel Good, Look Better. These are a series of workshops that are being run uh, throughout the country over, I think they started in, um, did you start in October or November, Margaret? We started in 2004. Okay, but I mean, this series of workshops that you're running now, they're running now from, from November through to December for how long? Um, Mabali, um, 
that our workshops run throughout the year. Throughout the year. Throughout so the year. it's a, it's a, it's, it's an event that, uh, that runs throughout the entire calendar. Yes, we have, we have, our workshops are scheduled a year in advance and they literally go throughout the calendar. Okay. And have fantastic. been since 2004. Okay. So I'm joined by Margaret Hewson, who is the program director of Feel Good, Look Better. And then I'm also joined by Elsa. Is it Davil or Davel? Davil. Sorry, Elsa. Let me just make sure I've got you on the right microphone here. Just, just say hello for me. Hi. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Elsa Darvel, who is a cancer survivor. Now, Elsa, let me begin with you. I remember my father saying to me, and my, my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he said to me, if you ever meet somebody who has survived cancer, you need to give them all the respect in the world because it is possibly one of the most harrowing things that a person can go through. W- would you agree with that sentiment, being a survivor yourself? I would say it's a... a the, uh, when you get the initial news that you've got cancer, there's so many emotions that go through you and uh, stages that you have to work through to actually come to terms with your lot. But it's, I can also assure you it's a life-changing experience. Can you take us back to the beginning when you discovered that you had cancer? How did that happen? Okay. Uh, it was in 2013. I discovered a lump in my breast mm. and I had to go to the doctor and... She referred me to, to have, to have a mammogram done. And then they said, no, there is something. And I had to go for a biopsy. And in a matter of two weeks, an operation, chemotherapy, treatment, everything was arranged. And I had to start uh, reconnecting my life to a new life. Now you speak about the emotions that one goes through when they first hear those words from the doctor that you've got cancer. Just what, what are these emotions? It's, uh, uh, it's, at first it's denial. You say, no, uh, not me. Yeah. And then it's anger and you say, now why me? And then you start to bargain. Okay, if I, if you remove this lump, what will happen then? And then you start to acknowledge, okay, fine, this is now happening to me and I just have to go forward. And you just acknowledge and just accept and go forward whatever comes your way. Margaret, when we read the kind of the, the statistics that we see, which is that one in nine women in South Africa are diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, followed by cervical cancer, why do you think it is with these figures that a lot of women, when they hear the news, they go, but this can't happen to me? When, you know, the statistics are stating the fact that actually it could, it doesn't discriminate, it could happen to any one of us. Well, why do you think that this is the, the visceral reaction from somebody who first hears You've got cancer. I think, Mabali, um, we don't want to face it. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a dreadful disease to have to face. I mean, I always say that um, if you haven't been diagnosed with cancer, um, it's very different to if you have. If you have, it's, your, your whole world changes. And so um, I, I think it's people initially think it's a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, with early detection, and of course that is to truly be encouraged, Early detection, go for mammograms, go for screening as early as possible if there's any concern, and also very regularly. Um, then, you know, at, at least if it's early detection, then the illness can be dealt with, um, and the success rate of survival is so much higher. But um, I think to the very fact that there is so much more accessibility to diagnosis and, and to detection, it does mean that more and more cancer um, incidents are being um, diagnosed actually Okay, let's talk about this uh, Feel good, look better These workshops And it's you said Look that they good, feel better Look good, feel better My mistake And you said that they were launched in 2004 
uh, in South Africa, but we're part of a very, very big global um, program. It was started in 1978 in America, and currently the program is offered in 26 countries globally. We are the only country in Africa to offer the program, and the program is essentially the cosmetic industries charity. It's the cosmetic industries arm. And the, the whole idea is that we receive products generously donated from the cosmetic industry, which we then use as tools in workshops um, to address appearance-related side effects of cancer treatment. Because, of course, any cancer treatment can be very, very harrowing and have a, um, a major uh, effect on confidence, on self-esteem. And so if in some small way we can help to restore that, we can help to create some form of normality because a cancer patient, one of the first, first um, aspects of her being diagnosed is this feeling of total out of control. Mm. You know, as also sort of expressed, um, you know, why me? It's out of control. One feels out of control. And if we can just help to in some way restore that control and create normality back in life, it makes such a difference. And as a result, you know, we like to think it's look good, feel better, heal better. Elsa, for all the good that family members around you, you know, they want to be supportive, they want to be understanding, and this affects them as well in their own way. But at the end of the day, as a cancer patient or survivor, do you feel like you're alone in, in the battle because it's happening to just you? I mean, yes, the loved ones around you might be thinking, you know, I can't believe that this is happening. But essentially, at the end of the day, is there some kind of loneliness that you go through where nobody else can really understand unless it's affected them in the exact same way? No, absolutely. It is a lonely road. And even though I was at such a strong support base, I, I always, I often felt I was alone. Because you've got to deal with things. You've got to put up a front that everything is okay to make them feel okay. Because they look at you and if you're okay, then they're okay. So it was quite a load to have to, you know, pep yourself up and say, I'm fine. But at times you just realize how alone you really are in this thing. And it's a never-ending journey. Mm. Elsa, take us through, if you will, some of the... Um the physical sort of challenges that come your way from undergoing treatment, whether it be chemotherapy or, you know, any kind of therapy when dealing with cancer. I mean, you know, you mentioned that you go through this experience on your own and then you also at the same time trying to put up a front where you, you know, you, you're trying to convince people that you're perfectly fine and that you, you're healthy. But I mean, take us through when you in by yourself in those moments where you are facing yourself you know, just the physical changes that, that, that happened to you. Take us through some of those. Well, initially when I was diagnosed with cancer in my breast, I had this image of Pac-Man. The, the older people will relate to that. And I just had, had this thing in my mind chewing away at my body, and I just wanted this tumor to be removed. And once they removed it, I had to deal with the scarring. And not feeling like a whole woman anymore because you've got half a breast, thank God, they only took half away. Mm. And you have to deal with the scarring and you go through chemo and it affects people differently. No two cancer patients are the same. So some suffer severely from skin disorders, all different things that you have to go through. But you just take one day at a time and mine was a four-week cycle. So you'll be at the low of the ebb and you'll just go towards the top. And it's time for chemo again. So it's down back 
to down to the bottom. But like every time that you go, it's like a victory for next time. And you, when you lose your hair and that new hair starts growing, it's new life to you and it's, you get very excited. At what point then did you then start being a part of these workshops, uh, the Feel Good, Look Better workshops? Okay. During my chemo treatment, I was invited to a Look Good, Feel Better workshop. And I didn't really want to go. Why not? Because I thought, oh man, same old, same old. You see these people getting their treatment and I don't really want to go. But I heard about this goodie bag and that made me a bit more excited. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so right. get, getting there, I was confronted or in sisterhood with women in the same position as me. We could take off our wigs and see each other without hair for the first time and we could connect to each other. And the thing, the excited thing, when we got our goodie bags, it was like Christmas because I went in July and had Christmas in July with all the products that we were sharing. And amongst other products, we had a tissue oil, the, the bio oil, tissue oil, mm. which was like every, the highlight of the bag because everybody could, knew that they could use that tissue oil for, to comfort them, to help them heal their scars. But amongst other things, it's just the sisterhood and being in, uh, communicating with people as you are. And as you progress, as you put on your lashes and your uh, eyebrows, you actually drew, drew a face. And we could actually go home with a face, getting that from look good, feel better. Uh, Margaret, have you been involved with the Feel Good, Look Better program since its inception here in South Africa, or did you join them at a later stage? No, I have uh, right from the very, very start. Um, okay, we, we because I, I would love to hear the, um, you know, the background story of the, the, the brands and the companies that you, that you approached and targeted and wanted to join on board and how that process was. Was it a difficult uh, journey to get them to be on board, or was it easy with them saying yes, or like anything we can do, we're happy to be a part of it? What we did was we started a steering committee right in the very beginning. It was like a, almost a pilot scheme to see what the response of the cosmetic industry would be to our program. And it was just phenomenal. A lot of the, the big international corporates, as well as many of the, the smaller companies, said, yes, we pledge our support. And many of them actually have pledged their support to Look Good, Feel Better um, programs globally as well. Um, so what we did then was we asked them for member. Well, they, they became members, and then they started donating product. And we started off in 2004 just with two hospitals. We actually started off at Santon Oncology and also a little company of Mary in Pretoria. And since then, our program has grown, and we now are in 40 public and private hospitals across South Africa and seven of the major cities. And you say that you run throughout the entire year? We do. We have workshops generally um, in private clinics. We have once a workshop once a month for approximately 12, 10 to 12 patients. In public hospitals, um, we have up to 20 patients twice a month. And the products are donated to us by the cosmetic industry. Our program actually has three principles globally. Number one, we are product neutral. Two, we are free to the patients and to the hospitals. And thirdly, we are non-medical. So we don't offer any medical advice, but we do offer um, skills and ways to actually address appearance-related side effects. And as Elsha mentioned, there are 26 um, that we have actually uh, identified. And so at these workshops, ladies come together and we can sort of say to them, now, what's really 
your issue? What's what's um, irritating you, or, or are you finding it difficult to cope with? And you know, anything from um, well, loss of hair is major, of course. Mm. Skin, skin is a major, major um, difficulty when undergoing treatment. Because well, what, what are the what are the side effects of then undergoing treatment on your skin? What actually happens to your skin, Elsa? It, as I said previously, it differs from pers- yeah. from patient to patient, but it could cause uh, normally discoloring. I had heavy discoloring, mm. and it could cause itchiness, dryness of skin, flakiness, and even uh, sc- uh, scarring and um, skin ulcers, mm. like a, an infection. It just differs from person to person, and it could be caused by the cancer itself, by the treatment that you're undergoing, by radiation. I mean, it really just sounds like a lot of things piling one on top of the other after your diagnosis that you have to wrap your mind around and have to deal with. And I'm just wondering what sort of dialogue you're having within yourself in those moments where you're realizing there's so many things that are piling up on top of me, working against me because of this diagnosis. How am I going to keep going? What what kind of dialogue do you have with yourself I, I, in that moment? I think the main thing is attitude. If you're, you've got the right attitude towards what you're going through and knowing that you've got a family that supports you and that you want to hang into life, hang on to life and just live one day at a time and you just take it as it comes. You don't run ahead of this thing. Margaret, in terms of the, you know, in terms of the the penetration of your workshops in the sense of how many people they're able to reach throughout the, the country, how widespread are your, your workshops and your programs? Well, we're in seven major cities um, across South Africa, right from Pretoria in the north to Cape Town, right in the south, and it's Peter Maritzburg, Durban, Port Elizabeth. Um, as I say, we're in 40 units, and... To date, we've reached just under 32,000 a women and a few men cancer patients across South Africa mm. since we started. Um, this year, it's well over 4,000 patients that have attended a workshop. And um, it, it's our, our real goal and, and passion to actually expand these workshops as much as possible. But, of course, in order to do that, we need ongoing support in the terms of pro- product mm. as well as finances Yeah, because we – it's very, very important that we um, are good ambassadors for the cosmetic industry, firstly, but also focused on the fact that we are dealing with ill people, people whose whose immune system is compromised, and so uh, and also we are um, offering the workshops in hospitals, and so our workshops always need to be run in a very, very professional, well duplicated manner. And as a result of that, we have. Over 280 volunteers across South Africa. And these are women who attend a workshop um, training every year. It's, it's a refresher training just to ensure that they are fully equipped to be able to effectively conduct um, a look good, feel better workshop. Because just remember when you, you go into a group of, or into a workshop, you'll have a group of say 12 or 20 women. And what you see is just the tip of a huge, huge iceberg mm. because what's going on inside, the emotional, the invisible side effects are so, so significant. We're just dealing with the visible. But women are in turmoil. They're out of control. They're fearful. And um, we're dealing with all these aspects. So it's so important that our volunteers 
can be effective in what they do and how they approach women. And I think this is the other very, very important aspect of Look Good, Feel Better. We've mentioned about how the journey can be so lonely. Yes, it definitely is. Um, But a, a Look Good, Feel Better workshop provides a very safe environment where women can come together, they can share experiences. You know, for me, it just is so rewarding. You'll have somebody who's perhaps sitting one side of the table and she'll say, oh, you know, I know that I'm going to have a particular treatment and I've been warned my hair will fall out, but she doesn't quite know how her hair might fall out. Yeah. And there's another woman sitting across the table and she'll say, but look at my hair. It fell out. It's starting to grow again. Just look at it. And it's that sort of encouragement which can be so powerful to another in a difficult circumstance so they haven't got the same sort of cancers but maybe similar experiences and the look good feel better program does deal with um, people suffering from all types of cancers it's not just exclusive to one type of cancer well let me ask you both this question and Elsa let me let me ask you to answer first why is it uh, why is it so important that the um, feel good look better program exists I mean the focus on your physical appearance while you're going through the, these these physical changes. Why, why is why is that important for you? I feel with going through your treatment, you don't really feel good about yourself. You look into the mirror and all you see is grey, nothing else, because it's your state of mind and that's how you feel. And you attend one of these workshops and you walk in there and the atmosphere is gloom. The volunteers are friendly. They invite you and to come and join in. But your fellow uh, patient is feeling just exactly the same as you do. And as you actually work through the workshop, starting with cleansing the skin and going to the makeup area, everybody's like their faces started lighting up because they discover, oh, I've got two lashes and I've got eyebrows. And the excitement and sharing with each other is so important. And it's so rewarding because I've never seen anybody walk out of that of, of a workshop not feeling number one. Margaret, what were the intentions or the objectives when launching this program? Feel good, look better. To assist a woman going through active cancer treatment, to restore her self-esteem, to restore her confidence, to restore her normality in life, and help her to take back control of her life, and thus to, to position her um, in a better place to be able to deal with her treatment and to face the world with confidence. All right, Margaret, um, let's talk about how people can find more information about these workshops. My understanding is that they're going to be running throughout the country um, in November, the last month that's just gone past, and then also throughout December of 2015. How how do people get get more information with regards to the workshops and where they can attend? Well, we we do have... um, a very detailed website, which is www.lgfb.co.za, standing for Look Good, Feel Better. They're welcome to phone us at the head office in Johannesburg, and that's 011-795-3927. Send an email, info at lgfb.co.za, and we can give them the information. Um, we do have workshops, as you say, scheduled um, to the to the end of the 2015 and then right through the whole of, of next year as well. So um, that, that's just really important. And um, also what the patients need to do is to speak to their oncology staff um, and just say, is a look good for your workshop being run at where I'm having treatment? Mm. And um, please can I book 
onto the next workshop. If there isn't a workshop being offered in their particular venue, then please just be in touch with us and we will organise for somebody to come to another workshop so that they can truly benefit. Now, you also mentioned that um, you're looking for more brands to, to sponsor products and that kind of thing. You're also looking for funding. So let's talk about the expansion plan going ahead for this kind of initiative. You did say that um, currently it's only available in South Africa. What is it going to take for you guys to expand into the rest of the continent, realistically speaking? That's not something we would do because we are supported by the cosmetic industry of South Africa. Okay. And really, we, we just touching a very, very small portion of cancer patients in South Africa. So we've got a long way to go to, to reach a bigger portion of, the, um, of that iceberg. But um, we do need more support with regard to products. So any companies that can offer products or can offer services um, to help us to actually expand the, the program would be absolutely amazing. And obviously, like any NPO, any business, we need finances to drive the business. Um, we have had inquiries from many other cities in South Africa saying, please, please come and offer the program at our, our um, oncology centers. But obviously, it's very important not to roll the program out until we know that we've got the right volunteers for that area and also that we have enough product and finances to be sustainable. Also, how does one attend these workshops? Do you go on a regular basis uh, depending on the area that you're in, or do you? Is it just a once-off, and then you kind of get the information that you need there, and then you 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 carry on by yourself at home? How does it work? How do you okay, attend? Okay, this this is a once-off workshop for patients in treatment, and it's um, a two-hour workshop, and they equip you with the whole cleansing routine. You actually get a face chart with all the information and. Um, at the back of the face chart, you've got information on massaging techniques and nail care and a range of um, uh, subjects uh, relating to your cancer. So you go once off and you're equipped for the rest of your treatment. Now, you did mention that initially when you heard about these workshops, you were not interested and you thought, oh, no, it's probably just going to be a complete waste of my time. So imagine somebody is sitting there thinking the same thing. What would you say to that person to to convince them to go and what would you say in terms of how they will benefit from it? I'll tell you what, after I've been to that workshop, <laughs> I, they didn't want to treat me anymore because I looked so good <laughs> <laughs> and the doctors didn't recognize me and I think it's your self-esteem that, that grows with us because everybody's beautiful when they leave there and, peop and we as patients don't believe that we can be beautiful because it's such a low in your life that a uh, communicating and associating with people on the same level as you. Even though you see them in treatment during chemo or radiation, you never really connect. But once you've attended a workshop, there's a connection. And it's just sisterhood, and we think we're just hot all the way. <laughs> now, you did also mention that attitude, one's attitude, is an important thing in surviving and beating cancer. But Elsa, surely there must have been days when you woke up and you felt, I just cannot get through this day. And is it okay every now and again for one to allow themselves to cry for the whole day and to feel sorry for themselves for the whole day? And then, you know, provided that they're able to pick themselves up again at a later stage. I, I mean, it's it's such a harrowing journey. No, absolutely. I agree with you. It's no use to like want to whitewash everything because we are human. And we go through emotions and we have to allow ourselves that time to actually feel sorry for yourself 
and to actually it's a, a morning process that you're going through. So it's not always easy, mm. but just to pick yourself up. And if you feel down, uh, allow yourself to feel down, but just know I'm fighting this battle and it's going to be a, a reward at the end. Absolutely. Elsa Davil, cancer survivor, strong cancer survivor, they're sharing her experience with us. And Margaret Hewson, Program Director of Feel Good, Look Better. Uh, Margaret, just that website once again for, for more information. It's www.lgfb.co.za, standing for Look Good, Feel Better. Margaret, thank you for all the great work that you and your program does. And Elsa, you are a strong woman. And thank <laughs> you so much for joining me this afternoon. Uh, cliffcentral.com This is Cliff Central. I am the future of South Africa. On my shoulders, I carry the hopes and dreams of generations to come. I'm eager to learn, but even more eager to use my knowledge for good. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibania Gold, we believe our youth is worth its weight in gold, which is why we are so committed to developing, nurturing, and grooming our young people into future leaders. Sibania Gold, we are one. This is Cliff Central. Say please. Hey, hey. Uh, wait till I get the buzz off this job. Damn, girl, you wait too fine for a local club. This could be us on cliffcentral.com with myself, Mabale Muloe, and my next guest, uh, Tulani Machere. Almost didn't make it because of that horrific scent in traffic. Good afternoon, Tulani. Afternoon, it's, Mabale. It's a nightmare, isn't it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've been on the road forever. I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. These things happen, but we're great that, uh, that, uh, well, it is great that you've managed to make it on time and to join us this afternoon. And thank you for your time. Big, big, big topic of discussion. Yeah. Everybody seems to think that uh, the norm in relationships is this idea of infidelity, which is an entirely different topic altogether. Of course. And then also these transactional relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, before we delve into it, Tulani, let me, let me get a sense of a background about you and what you do okay. and what your work entails. Okay, so I'm Tulani Machere. I'm from the ANOVA Health Institute. Okay. And we basically do a lot of work around prevention and treatment strategies within regards to HIV and AIDS. Okay. Uh, we work in a couple of facilities, about 78 facilities in a couple of regions here in Joburg. And also uh, visible in Polokwane and so on And in the Western Cape And what I'm basically doing I'm working on an adolescent and young woman program called Dreams Actually, I think a lot of people that might be listening might be very, very familiar with dreams because I think looking at the last decade, we've been worried about girls and young women for the longest of time. And there was a time when everything was on the rise and everybody's running around. And all of a sudden, we started getting worried about treatment. So for some strange reason, the whole uh, prevention strategies kind of subsided and everybody started, you know, focusing on treatment. Does everybody have access to treatment and so on? And I think now a decade later, we're looking at it and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, 28% of schoolgirls are infected with HIV. That's a large, large percentage. That's a and then problem. there's also obviously this risk in the 20 to 24 year old or the 14 to 24 year old because the infections are rising. They're on the rise. So we thought, you know what? We need to go back to a place where we start talking about adolescents, young women. How can we, you know, elicit the risk in, in their lives? And moreover, it's just so scary that girls are eight times more likely to be infected than boys of the same age. Why is that? 
Um, there's a lot of factors. Number one, there's biological factors. The way we are built, we are more susceptible to infection faster. It does not mean that we do, you know, we are more sexual or anything like that. I think we know in a lot of cases that guys most of the time are the most sexual. They get, you know, sexually active earlier. But in cases of guys, for example, I can give you one of the reasons. It's not the main reason. It's not the only reason. But one of the reasons when it comes to HIV and AIDS, most of the time we find that carriers are, are guys. And what I mean by carriers is the fact that I don't know if you've heard of scenarios where there's somebody, for example, a guy you speak to that says, you know, um, all the girls I've been with say they're infected But funny enough When I go and have a rapid test Meaning the test that you The blood test that you take on your finger You know I test negative And we go how does that happen You know And you find that everybody That he's ever slept with without a condom Or had sex with without a condom Is positive And you go How does that even happen yeah. You know You find in a case where a girl will go test And test positive She would go He'd go test And find that he's negative On a rapid test when you're a carrier, your test does not show. Your results, your HIV status does not show on a rapid test. So uh, let me get this straight. So women are the ones that are more affected by the virus. But are you saying that, uh, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Are you saying that the men are the ones actually spreading the virus? I'm saying both. Both sexes okay. spread it. Okay. But the difference sometimes why you find that, you know, uh, in one situation where you find that two people that had sex, one, for example, is negative and the other is positive, could be a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons why you find sometimes that there are four girls sleeping with one guy, yeah. four girls as per one guy. Yes. And this one guy stays, looks to have stayed negative because a rapid test shows that they're, ne- they're negative. Then they need to have something that we call an ELISA, which also picks up antibodies, just the same as a rapid test, until they actually go into a PCR. A PCR is a test that actually detects the virus directly then a guy will find out that they're hiv positive because when you're a carrier they, the anti the test cannot pick up if you're hiv positive from just your antibodies so what i'm basically saying that's not the reason okay now let me clarify it for you no please do <laughs> but, but then i mean what i really want to get to is hmm. into this this issue of transactional relationships yeah how do you define such a relationship what is it when somebody says a transactional relationship so what does that mean yeah okay when you talk about transactional relationship we've got two folds here a lot of people confuse intergenerational relationships and transactional intergenerational just means you're with somebody older they could be eight years or older than you and in most times you see there's an 18 year old going out with a 37 year old they're way more than eight years older than you but when you talk about transactional we talk about a relationship where you give something to take something back so in most cases that we look at when we say transactional relationship we're actually talking about a scenario where a girl whether hypothetically speaking is from a poverty-stricken environment and because of their poverty they get this nice nice older older man that says i'll help you out of it you know i'll give your mom 500 a month you want to do your hair here's hair you know you're going to a metric dance i can buy you a metric dance dress you want those gorgeous shoes i'll do that for you so what they're doing in return is that the girl then feels guilty or a sense of loyalty to us this older guy then has sex with the guy and cannot therefore negotiate even condom use because she feels that she is you know loyal to this guy that she's liable to this guy and therefore she gives her sex so that the guy can give them back something in material and that's a transactional relationship you're giving something to get something back in return bhavna singh said on twitter that sure sounds a lot like a lot like the world's oldest profession aka prostitution is mm. it is it prostitution so i mean i think it's it's relative to how people look at it but a lot of people would, would justify this prostitution because if you look at prostitution, obviously you're giving services and giving given money for it. But you must understand from an adolescent perspective, that's not how they see it. Usually if you're talking about a young woman or a girl, usually they look at it as this is an end to a means. So I mean this is a really really I mean I, I don't know how many people watch Scheme Sam um on SABC. I mean it's talking about that right now where there's a young girl who's coming from a single mother family who doesn't really work, who she's pregnant because of a boyfriend, blah blah. There's a lot of psychosocial issues going in the house. Mm. And now she finds this older guy who says, I'm gonna give you an internship and so on. That's how the relationship starts 
started. And after that, he started talking about how he cares, how if you can't talk to your mother because she's doing this to you, I'm there for you. And it started feeling like it's almost like enabling a gap that nobody could fill before. So for her, it means he's there for me. He's he's willing to help me out. And now I'm, I don't have to worry about not going to a metric dance because I don't have a dress. I don't have to worry about the things that my friends laugh at me when my hair looks scruffy. Mm. So to her, it's an end to a means. It means somebody actually cares about me and they're trying to help me out. So it's prostitution when people view view it, but it's not prostitution to a person doing it. Hence why young girls need to be empowered to understand what it really means in terms of their lives. Demographics in this country, people obsess about that kind of thing. And so if I had to ask you to paint a picture of what kind of person is likely to enter into a transactional relationship, is it a specific type type of person or is it people across the board? Because somebody might immediately assume it's probably a young girl. Mm. She probably comes from a very impoverished background. Mm-hmm. Socioeconomically, she's not empowered. Of course. She, it's likely that type of person. Of is it a specific demographic or do you find a range of people who enter into transactions? It is transactional? a range. It is okay. a range. All and right. the reason I say that, I think... In the past, we looked a lot at socioeconomic issues because that's what it was about. It yeah. was, I think she's with her to, you know, fill the gap. And then we had grievance problems where, you know, a young girl lost, lost a dad and she doesn't have a good relationship with the mom. And when she finds a sugar daddy and people will say, you know, we think maybe that's filling the void for her father who she doesn't no longer have in her life. And that's beyond poverty and beyond socioeconomic. I mean, you know, social standards, if I may put it that way, in terms of monetary term, uh, value. And then there's girls in tertiary that are doing just fine. But you find that, for example, the parents have divorced. Uh, she used to live a good life. She was living around the north and everything was well. Now she has to go back to a public school. You know, she has to almost go beyond the standards she's used to. And some girls refuse to do that. Therefore, they will be in tertiary. They'll maintain their lifestyle and there will be this older guy that does it for them. And of course, there's a normal scenario, the scenario that we're used to where it's a poor girl who sees the, the, the sugar daddy. And remember when you, I think I need to clarify something as well. Remember when you say transactional. Yeah. Doesn't only mean sugar daddy. It could be a guy the same age just living a better life than I do and I want it. Okay. So transactional doesn't just refer to a person that's a sugar daddy. I could be 18 and I'm meeting a guy who's 21. He finished school three years ago. For all I know, I could just be coming from a family where they're quite standard, but he's 21 and he just got like some kind of internship at, you know, an attorney firm and they're giving him 7,000 a month. To me, that means something. I'm not going to go date a guy that's in metric that's probably striving like I am that's looking for pocket money for his parents. So remember that I think it's important for us to also gauge that it's as much as it ranges from different socioeconomic groups, it is also different age groups. It's not just a sugar daddy. So while we're talking about this demographic, let's take a look at men and what the prevalence of men who enter into these relationships are. Sugar mummies mm-hmm. I don't suspect it's as much as with the women no. But do you find guys who enter into these kinds of relationships Because there's a woman out there Who can provide for him financially Of course, there's a lot of situations I mean, I'll tell you just in my social spaces And out of just my work experience I mean, I've got people that are 40-something And they're friends of mine And I've seen so many, so many times when she's driving a cool car, she's working in a cool company, where you find this younger guy saying, I don't really mind what you do. And I mean, I've got one scenario that I actually knew about where a guy was like, you know what? I'm actually going to leave work to help you out with the business. And she didn't mind. She was just so in love with this young guy. And she was out of a divorce and she felt revived. You know that I've got a young man. He still finds me attractive after all the abuse I suffered in a relationship. And he literally left his job and stayed with this woman, never actually helped her with the company. And he was more than willing to stay and drive her cars and do everything else. So there are guys who consciously go out and say, I would love to have a sugar mommy. They're less stressed. They're more matured. They know what to do. And I don't have to worry about maintaining them financially. Mo Noachezi on Twitter says, 
this is the way forward though you can't be in a relationship with someone who is broke and so my question is <laughs> is this becoming the norm in terms of what defines relationships it is it is sadly so but it is and are and we getting into relationships for for the benefits that we can get from the other person yes. that we're with okay yes i mean it might not encounter for 100 percent of, of everybody in south africa that's not how we all think some people still marry for love some people would be you know i'd be an attorney and say i don't mind getting a construction worker because of how he treats me mm. but that is a minority for the majority i mean let's look at it practically okay okay so if you've gone to varsity and you've done your honors or anything i mean you've got some kind of qualification even if it's just a degree or diploma and you feel you know i can see my future's bright and you meet this lovely lovely guy you haven't asked him what he does and you're really really liking him and the one day he says uh, you know i'm gonna have to come over but i'm gonna use public transport you find the girl saying uh so do you travel with taxis a lot yeah, you know? yeah yeah okay can i just paint that scenario so what i'm saying what i'm trying to get at is we all want better but what what we've kind of we're trying to we're starting to see being normalized is the better means somebody that comes into my life better have whether on the same better be either on the same level mm, or, or be above or higher, yeah. what i'm trying to achieve and it's just a pity that we only see it when it happens, you know, in, in with, with adolescents or just young women under 24, where they're actually looking for those type of relationships. Older women do it all the time. They find love. That I just don't want love. I'm not just marrying for love. I want to love, but I also want to be comfortable. So no matter what happens, he can travel the world as long as he lives me in his big house, as long as he can provide for me. And I think it's starting to be a norm because of that. Every soap you watch, every drama series you watch, they're talking about the same thing. He needs to be somewhere. He needs to get something. He needs to bring something in. And most 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 of the time, unfortunately, that means monetary. The benefits are obvious for somebody who is receiving the financial benefits. Mm. And I also want to get into, it's not just money that yeah. qualifies as benefits here. It's yeah. a whole range of things. Yes. But what is the person who's providing these benefits getting in return? I mean, is it just sex? Is that really it? Like, because, it at, it? <laughs> no, because at the end of the day, mm. you know, you're parting with your hard-earned money yes. to provide for this person that you, I don't know, you're buying weaves for or you're letting them drive around in your car. But what are you actually getting in return as the person who's financially powerful or more powerful than the person who's receiving the, the rewards from you. The world is so full of psychosocial <laughs> issues, psychological <laughs> issues. So for some guys, it's just merely ego. You must remember yeah. something as well, if we, when we get back to the uh, topic of sugar daddies and transitional relationships, you must remember if I earn 80000 a month, it's most likely that I'm not going to get another woman that that earns 80,000, not even 40 sometimes. I'll, I might get a woman that earns 20, 30, sometimes a woman who doesn't earn anything. And remember that if I have to go right now and buy something that is worth I mean, a perfume for a thousand bucks. What is a thousand bucks in 80 bucks? There's no loss at all. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need to understand when it comes to finances is that we think somehow when the sugar daddy is giving away a lot of money, he's got a lot to lose. He really does not. Sometimes it's e- ego issues. Sometimes it's wanting to feel wanted. Sometimes we've got guys that have control issues and they cannot do that with women at the same age. And it's better to have somebody younger because then I can control them better. We're looking at risk infections when it comes to HIV. The reason our young girls who are with sugar daddies cannot negotiate for condom use. I mean, how do you negotiate at the age of 20 with somebody who's 40 who can reason? They've seen it all. They've experienced it all. They know all the stories in the book. There is nothing that you can completely say to them and win them over. It is very few girls who can actually say, listen, I want a condom because. At that time, she measures what she's getting out of relationship with based on what. I mean, at that time, he looks very loyal. Let me say something when it comes to sugar daddies. We picture them as these bad, bad wolves. Remember when they approach you, they're not coming across as bad wolves. When they approach you, they're caring. 
They're filling the gap. They're taking care of you. They're worried when you're not well. When you don't say, I'm home, they say, no, I'm not shouting at you. I'm just worried that you didn't report you home. Oh, my God, no ex-boyfriend, nobody my age has ever treated me that way. And what we don't understand is when these young girls are approached by sugar daddies, it's a beautiful, lovely approach. Taking care of, he takes care of me. I don't know what I'm going to have tomorrow. I'll provide, I'll provide. And I think what we need to understand as society looking into these situations is that we need to stop, say, talking to these young girls like these guys are monsters. If you're in a relationship And I talk to you about your man And you're still not sure if you want to leave him There's a big chance you're going to stop talking to me about it But if I talk to you Like I understand what you're going through But I'm telling you an opposing side You are more likely to listen to me But Tulani, there's a lot of these young women Young girls who think that they are making empowered choices Of course, They think to themselves But I want the guy who drives a fancy car And I want a guy who will be able to buy a Brazilian Wii for Mm. me And I want a guy who can buy me X, Y, and Z Mm. And therefore they think that that's Because that's what they want They're empowered But what sounds to me like what you're saying is No, actually at the end of the day You're you're the one in the powerless position Until you stand up and say I want the 3 Series BMW. And in order to get it, it means I've got to finish this course. It means i got to work harder. It means I have to find an internship that pays. That is your plan. Until you make your plan happen, you are not empowered. The point is to not focus your energy on saying, he's a bad guy, he's a monster. The power is... It comes from a place where you empower the young girl to make it on their own, to be so proud of who they are and what they can do for themselves. That's who is empowered. I think the whole thing went off when we started talking, focusing on he's the bad guy. He's the stop focusing on this person that they're looking up. Focus on them. Remind them of what they're good at. Remind them of what strengthens them. Remind them of what they can do with their lives. Make them feel like that is important. Remind them why they need to care about themselves so much. Remind them why they need to make decisions that impact them. You know, I mean, people always use the apathetical example to say, if this guy got, you know, bumped by a bus tomorrow and you wake up tomorrow, you go test and you test HIV positive. Can you really say he gave it to you? Mm. You know, in an age where there's so much information and awareness, do you really sit and say, oh, he gave it to me? Because you need to empower this girl to a sense where they understand when, when I sleep with this guy, when I have sex with this guy. Whatever happens after this because I've allowed it, except in a, in a situation where there's sexual violence, of course, like rape or, you know, whatever else. But in a situation where you've got a choice to make, empower the young girl to be able to make decisions that she understands that are completely about her beyond the second person. I mean, I think what you said earlier was so important in terms of normalizing such behaviors. We've normalized cheating in marriages. We've normalized cheating in relationships. We make it look like it's this thing that strengthens the relationship and hence why you know, years later, we're looking at it and going to these, and looking at these kids and going, why would you allow such? But also, we make it seem as if though, because this is a normal thing that happens in relationships, I can't even demand for something different you or, you know, to. say, listen, this is not what I want because we're thinking, ah, oh, but every relationship is like this. Yeah, so that I therefore, think that's the power of life to not say because somebody's doing it. Tolania, I am so sorry that we didn't have enough time this <laughs> afternoon, but thank you for braving through that horrible traffic and for joining me this afternoon nonetheless. And I do want us to continue and have this conversation yeah. possibly in the new year because I think it is is an important and ongoing conversation, especially for these young women who think that they are making empowered decisions Mm. when they enter into these types of Mm. relationships. And so this is where I'll leave it this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining you. Back with you again next week, Thursday, right here on cliffcentral.com. This is Cliff Central.